0: We consider especially our Gospel lesson from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22. And the question before us, the question for us to consider this night, is especially, how can a sinful person stand in the presence of God? And that, even though that is the central question, and the big question of life, and even though that is the spiritual question to which every other question leads. You can think of a few readily available examples and ideas and reactions. The first one, how is it that a sinful person can stand in the presence of Holy God? The first one is just to dismiss the idea. Well, if there's any truth in what you're telling me, then I don't have to worry about it right now. I've got other concerns, real concerns, that have to do with my life here. And quite frankly, I'm a little busy, but it's not my concern right now. How is it that holy people can, that sinful people can stand in the presence of holy God? And after that, then, then, If the conversation continues long enough, you would get a little bit more of a conversation. Once you get past the dismissiveness and the outright rejection of, I I don't think that that's the conversation we want to have and I'm not really interested. Well, then the very next layer is, well, I'm glad that I don't have to worry about that. You know, I'm not, like, I'm not like some of those sinners that you read about in the paper, and I don't hold to, hold and to commit any of the sins that the really bad people do. Because there are things that even our society and our culture will recognize as reprehensible and horrible. And the, the sort of thing where if the newscaster is reading script, they have to pause for a moment or completely go off script at the horrible things that they would have to recount. I'm not like that, so, you know, I'm pretty good. I still don't have to worry about it. And if you're blessed ever with the opportunity and the mutual respect for somebody to pursue the conversation any further, then it'll end up in one of two places. Either the first one, how is it that sinful people can stand in the presence of holy God? And the first reaction, well... I don't know. Maybe if I, maybe if I um, do something to undo what I've done. In other words, that God's standard needs to come down just a little bit and then I'll be okay. Or, I can't. Occasionally you'll get to that, that bare admission of guilt. I can't. And sometimes it's, It carries with it so much shame and guilt, almost like any spiritual vitality or pursuit has been totally crushed out of this person for whatever reason. I can't. And I guess I'll get what's coming to me, and hopefully there's an end to that. I've only encountered that one time. It was the the father of a good friend back in Canada and he had narrowly escaped as, um, as a neighboring large country was overtaking his own country. And he escaped with the, um, basically the shirt on his back and his family. And in a sense, it totally changed his outlook and made him a pessimist to the extreme. So that even, even the concept of law and gospel, sin and grace, was something where like the life had been totally crushed out of him. I can't explain it any further than that. But it came to this discussion, and we got past the dismissiveness that yes, this is a question that each of us has to consider. Because like it or not, each of us will stand before Holy God. And like it or not, each of us will stand before him, usually on a time frame that we aren't planning for, and and under circumstances that we aren't anticipating. And each of us will have to stand before him. And you get past the first dismissive reaction. And even to the second well, I'm a pretty good person, and I'm not like those sinners over there. But it was finally this this third one. Well, then I guess that means I'll get what's coming to me. And hopefully there's an end. And that's the thing. How is it that sinful people can stand in the presence of holy God? The only hope of of humans on our own, the only hope that any religion or any philosophy or any mindset would have to offer is that either A, you can do something to, to make yourself better, to improve yourself and undo the bad that we've done, or B, that holy God has a holy standard that I'll never measure up to, but at least at some point... The suffering will come to an end. But it won't. And it doesn't. And that question, as uncomfortable as it is, it perhaps unveils for us the reality that that is what our first parents had at the very beginning. That they actually had the ability to stand in the presence of holy God, and they lost it. And the entire account of scripture is the entire accounting of God's work to bring people back to himself. And he does so through a series of what we call covenants. A covenant. Our, our modern terminology would be like a contract. And you're thinking like a serious one, like you know signing your life away on a mortgage or something like that. That would be a fairly good comparison. So this covenant relationship. And the very first one that we've got is when God comes to Abraham. Abraham who has nothing in himself. He's just a random dude doing his, um, all of his shepherding and his goat herding and running his own, his own estate. And out of all people, God chooses him and says a series of promises. That's in Genesis chapter 12. God's covenant with Abraham, and it's seven statements, one after another, all encapsulated and leading up to the final, that through Abraham's descendant, all people would be blessed. Those are the terms of the relationship, the contract, to which God then binds himself three chapters later. God binds himself to that contract again. God binds himself to that covenant again, as he reiterates in a very vivid way. You'll have to check it out, Genesis chapter 15. As God reiterates in a very vivid way that he is serious. That even though Abraham is, you know, he's been, (laughs) he's like 85, 90 years old, and God says, just wait, you'll see. You and Sarah will have a son. And as you know, that son eventually came, and that son was Isaac. And another 600 years or so after that, God brought his people out of slavery and brought them to Mount Sinai. And there you had another covenant. This covenant where God had established this relationship, this contract between himself and the physical nation of Israel. God had established this covenant relationship where he said, if if you remain my people, if you follow my command, then I will be your God, and then you will be my chosen people. And those were the terms and the conditions. If they followed God's law as summarized so precisely in the Ten Commandments and in all of their religious life, and if they remained faithful to God, then God promised, as a result, he would remain faithful to them and keep them as his own. And if you keep paging through the book of Genesis, um, that was like Genesis 19 or 20, and get to Genesis chapter, or Exodus rather, Exodus chapter 24, you've got the sealing of the covenant. Not sitting down with a notary and, and signing page after page and initialing at the bottom like you do with a mortgage, with our modern contract, but the sealing of the covenant, where they kill this animal and they sprinkle the blood of the animal on the people and on the things representing God, the Ark of the Covenant. And even there, that term, the Ark of the Covenant, the box of the contract that has the terms and conditions and all the fine print. And it's all sealed and signed on the dotted line with the blood of that animal they sacrificed. How is it that sinful people can stand in the presence of holy God? Because if you look at that that covenant contract between God and his people, first of all, it doesn't apply to us anymore. You and I are not part of the physical nation of Israel. We are (laughs) citizens of the United States of America. We were not there at Mount Sinai. We were not participants in that covenant. We We were sprinkled with the blood of bulls and goats. And so the question remains how is it that sinful people can stand in the presence of Holy God? And that's where the last one, the fulfillment, comes in, in our reading from Jeremiah tonight, where Jeremiah says, you know what, if you look at this, um, Jeremiah basically says, um, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And there's a twist. Because this new covenant isn't just going to be with the physical nation of Israel, but with the spiritual children of God. And you can know that because (laughs) up there in verse 31, he mentions the house of Israel, and Israel had been destroyed for like 150 years by the time he's writing this. And so he says, I'm going to make a new covenant, a new contract, a new relationship between God and his people that is basically reiterating the fulfillment of all that God had promised to Abraham. And God even lays out the terms and conditions, and it's it's not an if you do this, then God promises that, like the temporary covenant with God's Old Testament nation. If you look at the terms and conditions of this covenant, Beginning in verse 33. I will put my law in their minds. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will each one teach his neighbor or each one teach his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. Seven Statements exactly as God had said to Abraham. There you have it, a complete covenant, a complete contract, a complete relationship until God comes through with the grand slam of all of them. Number eight. For I will forgive their guilt, and I will remember their sins no more. And here he is, here is God, nearly 600 years before Jesus and 800 years after Abraham, or 800 years after Moses, 800 years after Moses and 600 years before Jesus, and God says, you know what, I'm going to make it happen. How is it that sinful people can stand in the presence of Holy God? He says, I will make it happen. Just wait and see. Watch and see. Listen and see. And you will know. And you will know how is it that people can stand in the presence of Holy God. That God will be able to say justly that he chooses to forgive and to forget. That his justice and his holiness will be fulfilled. And at the same time, he invites people, you and me, sinful people, into his presence, into the presence of Holy God both now and forever. And that's exactly where Jesus leads us in our gospel reading. When the hour had come, and Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve apostles, verses 19 and 20, Jesus Gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after the supper, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood which is being poured out for you. And depending on which of the three gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or uh, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians, are the four places where we have the words of institution recorded. They pick up on the terminology of a covenant. This is the new covenant in my blood, or this is the new testament in my blood. And here in the Lord's Supper, they come together. Here in the Lord's Supper, the covenant, the new covenant, the fulfillment of all that Jeremiah had talked about, the fulfillment of all the times that the people and the children of Israel had failed, the fulfillment of all the promises to Abraham are fulfilled here where Jesus gives his blood as the Lamb of God, and he sprinkles his blood on those who participate and partake in this new covenant. This new covenant where we stand under the shower of of his blood, and where where that body and blood are given to you for the forgiveness of sins so that each person, each person standing here at the Lord's table receives by mouth the exact same blessing, the exact same body and blood broken and shed for you, the exact same spiritual blessing given to all who believe it. The forgiveness of sins. God's promise that he has forgiven and that he has forgotten. The new covenant. Jesus also uses, or the gospel writers also use the term, the New Testament. And there is, you know, it's another legal document, like someone's last will and testament. The last will and testament of the one who knows that it's only a few more hours until he will be dying on that cross. And as he is looking ahead to that time when he will be dying on the cross, and thinking of the sparse and spare possessions that he might have to dole out, He doesn't sit around reminiscing with his disciples. He promises them, he promises them an eternal inheritance. That they are the inheritors of his last will and testament. Where he says, this is what he has to give. This is what he has to distribute. Take this and divide it among you. Take and eat, take and drink for the forgiveness of your sins. Yeah, it's a legal judicial term, a legally binding testament, where he says this is the New Testament in his blood. Not just like last will and testament as somebody who knows that they are passing from this world, but the New Testament of the one who knows that he will raise himself from the dead to guarantee the forgiveness of sins that he distributes here. How is it that holy people can stand before holy God. Only when holy God makes them holy. Only when holy God washes away sin and promises, exactly as he had promised all along, exactly as he had promised to Abraham, and exactly as he had kept those people close to him through Moses, and exactly as he had promised through Jeremiah, so also we participate together tonight as the blood of the new covenant and Christ's promise of your eternal gift of forgiveness is given to you in a way that is tangible and tasteable in a way that yeah you can even (laughs) sit down with the children afterward and uh, they can smell it perhaps that was your experience as a little child too and they can smell it and say what's going on and what is this and you can say this again is how holy God brings sinful people into his presence. This, again, is how my Lord has marked me as a member of his new covenant. Amen.